uh, was run out of his town, and he goes to um, an island that he is said to be uninhabited, uh, uninhabited, uh, but it was inhabited um, by Sycorax. Um, who he killed to take take over the island, and he enslaves her son, Caliban. And a lot of times, uh, Sycorax is read as a, a black woman. She's a North African woman. And he refers to her as a witch. And, um, of course, he enslaves her son, Caliban. And um, she sort of still haunts the island, which is really, really interesting. Um, she's dead. But he's still talking about her. Like there are several points where he's talking about that foul, uh, uh, that black witch sticker act, that blue-eyed hag. Um, he talks about her in this manner when he has he has won, right? He has won the war. He's the owner of the island. Um, he has his own version of magics and things like that. And a lot of times, uh, sticker act is read as um, the colonized woman, right? Um, uh, the non-white woman, and I read her um, and her absent presence, you know, how she still haunts the play even in her death uh, as, as black women in horror, right? She, she, she's a working metaphor for me. I see. Okay. Uh, well, that, that makes total sense. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and so she was a, a good metaphor for you as you studied mm-hmm. uh, the role that black women play in contemporary horror. Yes. I, I adapted her work from Sylvia Winter, who's actually um, a black woman philosopher um, uh, from from Jamaica, she's and um, she works in the Caribbean. And what she talks about is she reads um, she reads it through the eyes of Miranda, who is Prospero's daughter. And she says that there are so many different manifestations of manhood in the play. There's Prospero, who's uh, the rich noble. There's um, uh, Stefano and Trinkolo. Uh, there are poor men. There are black men. There's Caliban. There are uh, nobles, there are educated and uneducated men, but there's only one manifestation of womanhood, and that's Miranda. And she is uh, a white, uh, rich, middle class, and um, highly protected, right? And so she says, she speaks about that in terms of the relationship and the commentary on uh, the absence of black women, right? Uh, particularly mm-hmm. in the painting of, of white womanhood on a certain um, on a certain pedestal, and the social meanings of that, right? How there there are all different types of of, of um, uh, um, manhood ideas of manhood that you can occupy, but only one idea of what true womanhood is, and how that sets up a, right. a, a problem from very early on. Okay. Well, and and what comes to mind hearing you say that is, you know, white women complain it's all about men and they're neglected, but I guess if white women think they're neglected, uh, they they haven't given much thought to how black women are neglected, right? Yeah, it's it's about uh, intersectionality and paying the difference, um, paying attention to – the many pushes and pulls, right? Uh, paying attention to hierarchies of power, right? Paying attention to the simultaneity that you can be uh, both oppressed and oppressor at the same time, and uh-huh. the push that uh, women of color and, and uh, in my case, black women, um, 
are pushing for white women to recognize how they participate continuously and uh, benefit from white supremacy. And, and we see that in our contemporary times, correct? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's something I really do want to get into tonight, uh, you know, yes. and, and maybe it play, plays a part in this, con, you know, in, in this subject of contemporary horror. Uh, yes. But, I mean, just um, I, just recently, I mean, there was an article in Forbes that got pulled down, but fortunately uh, people retrieved it from the Google cache, you know, talking about how white supremacy in Christianity sort of work hand in hand, uh, you know, to keep uh, black people down, to keep white women down. And uh, I'm actually going to have Janine Fletcher uh, on my show in – I, I want to say, I don't know, maybe a month or two, she's written a book, uh, and I'm sure heads are exploding all over the South. Uh, you know, she's written a book ab- about how white Christians have to take responsibility for uh, perpetuating um, racism. And, um, and, you know, and I, lo- I love, go ahead. No, I was just saying, not just perpetuating, but changing the dynamics of it, right? So um, changing it continuously, you know, white supremacy is wily because it continuously changes and adapts, right? This is how you can have where 100 years ago Irish folks weren't considered white, right? So it adapts, right? It, it needs the love. It needs the people in power in order to continue its supremacy, right? You know, society changes. Things advance. Things develop. So enslavement has to turn into the prison system, right? Things have to Mm -hmm. change, and white supremacy itself has to change in order to maintain its power. So it's not just about um, perpetuating it, but it's continuously remaking it and changing the rules so it stays in power. And and, and that's purposeful and continuous. So you know what? That's that's really an important point, and I, I wonder if maybe you can give some examples of that. Um. So, uh, well, uh, we look at the the ideas of the new Jim Crow, looking at the idea of um, the idea of how enslavement adapted and changed, the enslavement of black folks adapted and changed to the imprisonment of black folks, right? And how the law, mm-hmm. um, uh, Tennessee Coates talks about this. Um, uh, the author of The New Jim Crow talks about this. I can't, her name is slipping from me right now. But of how with post-emancipation, there was re- the reconstruction, right? And with the reconstruction, there was a lot of, Black folks who began to attain power, black folks who actually began to um, show that they were competent, show that they were intelligent, and show that they had the potential to be very good at running the country. And I'm, I'm saying this because I'm reading uh, Coach's book, We Were Eight Years in Power. Um, and a lot of people think it's about Obama, but he's also going back to the period of reconstruction of how once folks, particularly southern, uh, the southern white slaveocracy, recognize that um, even uh, with them uh, losing the war, losing the Civil War, that they could have a competent black government. It wasn't just having a black government, but a competent black government that pushes against 
the basics of white supremacy's idea that black folks have no ability, have no abilities, right, that are useful other mm-hmm. than, um, uh, than hard work, um, than manual labor. And this is right, how Jim Crow right. was reinstated, right? This is why, because the Reconstruction was stopped, period. They were like, this is ridiculous. We cannot have this happen. And we see this, you know, history moves in cycles. We're seeing this again, right? You had Obama, and he was competent. He, 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 he wasn't perfect, but he was more than competent. And you're seeing the pushback against this with the Trump, right? So right, what, does, right. what does this mean? How does this manifest? Um, you know, how, well, you know, you know I, go ahead. I, I, always, I always felt that it really bothered the racists in the country that he was so intelligent and competent, you know, uh, and, and him and his family were such a beautiful role model, you know. Um, but, it, but but I, I wonder, you know, when, when you said that, you know, white supremacy kind of just changes with culture to keep in power, you know, I, I thought of some things, and I wonder if these are some examples of that. Okay. You know, we go from – you know, we we go from outright slavery, okay, I mm-hmm. mean, we, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, uh, you know, when the Civil War is over or ending, mm-hmm. um, you know, slaves, instead of being outright slaves, they get, uh, you know, they get pushed into these apprenticeships, um, which they, you know, was kind of just a label they used to get around slavery. They were still slaves. It's just they called them uh, an apprentice, um, and, and that was sort well. of, mm-hmm. yeah, sharecropping, or mm-hmm. um, or we see when uh, you know, giving them, you know, giving black people the right to vote uh, or not. Uh, you know, we st- we see Republicans today are still trying to suppress the black vote. Uh, mm-hmm. You see how black men are incarcerated, uh, you know, so much more uh, quickly or in larger numbers than than you know white men might be. Um, you know, or all of these it, examples. Uh, yeah, well, are all of these yeah. examples of that shift? Yes, all of these are examples of that shift. Uh, there, there are also examples in terms of getting other folks who wouldn't necessarily be considered WASP invested into white supremacy, right? So as we get immigrants beginning to flood in in the late latter part of the 19th century and when you had uh, Irish and Italians and Polish folks, um, even um, um, so moving into where some Jewish folks have a certain working with whiteness, um, some Asian folks being a model minority has a, have a certain relationship with whiteness. So getting other uh, folks invested in white supremacy and saying, hey, you can be a part of this hierarchy, you can have some power within this hierarchy, as long as you are keeping certain folks, namely uh, black folks, um, at the bottom of the hierarchy, right? You can participate, right. you can have a modicum of power, Right. Um, so we right. need to expect, right? You still you starting to see that with the inclusion of white Hispanics, right, into white, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, we see that with uh, some of the Cuban folks in um, in South Florida and things like that. Right? You have an access to whiteness that other folks do not have, therefore placing you in a hierarchy of power as both oppressor and oppressed, right? 
And this I, is also yeah. the, the 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 nuance, right? We need we need we need very nuanced ways to um, discuss this. It can't be broad, you know, definitions of you're bad, you're good, all of these things. We need nuance when when breaking these things down because a lot of people are, occupy multiple positions according to their relations to other people. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you know, when I'm thinking about, um, uh, you know, white women, too, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, quite frankly, I'm, I'm, and I've said it to my white women friends, I mean, I'm annoyed with a lot of white women, quite frankly, you know, because, you know, they're out there voting for the Roy Moores of the world, and, you know, they're complicit in their own oppression, and they, you know, they help, opp- they help oppress other people. Um, I, I mean, and I understand it's inner sectionality and you know they uh, they've benefited from the system the way it is even though the system is corrupt um but does that have something to do with this idea of white women's tears yes it does here's the thing white women have consistently shown through their vote through their actions that they would rather side with their white husbands sons and brothers than with their own true liberation i think that has to be a question of what scares white women about liberation, the liberation of all. And, you know, a lot of of my developing uh, work in cultural readings is about that relationship between white women and the pedestal and, excuse me, black women and the pedestal, right? Um, What is it about the pedestal that it's still being protected with with such ferocity? Right. Okay. Wait. Wait a minute. Wait. Wait a minute, though. Wait. 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 Before you go too far, explain what you mean by the pedestal. The pedestal of that white womanhood is the true manifestation of womanhood. Uh, This is uh, coming uh, from uh, its latest manifestation is probably to the Barbara Welter talks about this in her work, the cult of true womanhood, and the idea that true womanhood, the only person who can occupy womanhood. Um, and be defined as a true woman or, or, or white women, right? So it, it includes uh, domesticity. Um, oh, my gosh. It, it's four. There are four uh, ideas of it, uh, piety, purity, and one other, right? Uh, so that knocks out a lot of women, um, and, and even some white women, right, at that point in time, right? right? sure. So, so it causes <laughs> yeah. for this, I, yeah, it, it causes for a lot, and, and so, but this is the only manifestation of womanhood that um, can exist, and it is worthy of fierce protection, fierce protection, right? And that's the pedestal mm-hmm. which I am talking about, the access to the protection of white men and the laws in which they construct. Okay, and and the phrase white women's tears, I mean, isn't it something about, um, and forgive me if I don't language this right, I hope you can do better than me, you know, this idea of white uh, white women's tears is something about in order not to um, insult or make uncomfortable white women, uh, black women have uh, sort of been, uh, you know, their plight has been ignored. Uh, yes, yes. Well, white women's tears is uh, about the idea and the power of white women to use and manipulate their emotions to manipulate situations, particularly where they are called on their BS. 
particularly where they are usually nine times out of ten, it is uh, someone black, uh, uh, many times a woman, who is calling them out on their problematic behavior, um, who can call them out on um, something just out, out of the box that they said or done, and that a lot of times um, there will be this, this reversion uh, to tears, to crying, and that it is uh, a tool and a weapon, right? People have died, literally, because white women have cried. Um, and uh, it's highlighting and recognizing that this is a weapon and that okay. it is used okay. and deployed as a weapon and that uh, a, a, those of us who are pushing back against it are saying we will no longer accept it as a weapon. We will no longer accept it as um, a place of refuge in which uh, a lot of times white women can um, go go to. Sometimes there are tears. Sometimes there's um, a crumbling or a quieting or or a silencing um, or or an accusation of being silenced. I see now um, in in and even pushback and subversion to the idea of white women's tears. There is the declaration of "Oh, you're a bully," right? You're bullying me, mm. right? This, this is the mm-hmm. problem. When it's like I'm, I'm stating my truth, I, I'm saying these things in this way, but also that it also ties into things that Hortense Spiller has talked about. Um, she's a professor at Vanderbilt. And the idea that black women lack the access of protection, right? Uh, we were not protected by our men in the ways that white women um, were specifically because black men that protected us were killed. They were lynched, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. black women have had to develop other ways in which to move throughout the world that that does not endanger black men, right? And a lot of times these uh, other modes of moving throughout the world have turned into this uh, idea of the strong black woman, this problematic idea of the strong black woman, this problematic idea of, the matriarchal or the sapphire, the ball-busting black woman, right, Um, in that certain walls have to be put up in order to survive um, and protect black men so they they literally don't get lynched, right, or shot by the police. Like certain problems have to be taken care of so my husband, father, or son does not get killed by these institutions, right? So then it becomes turned Mm -hmm. on to like, oh, you're too strong. Right. Oh, you yeah. Know, you're 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 emasculating. Right. Um, so mm-hmm. so again, how these things. So so then when um, and and here I'm speaking in broad terms. So if a, a, a in a, the term white woman's tears can come from times when and there's a, there's a cartoon out there about it. Um, I'll send it to you and maybe you can link it for your followers, where you know. Um, a black woman will say to a white woman, like, there's a problem with this, you shouldn't do this or whatever. And, and feelings, and I sometimes think that, that white women's feelings are truly hurt because they don't recognize that um, that what they said was problematic or what they did was problematic. Um, although I think yeah. that's less and less true because there's just so much information out there. To when feelings are hurt, to revert to tears, revert to that as your main go-to becomes a problem because then the black woman looks like the bully, then the black, it turns into a conversation of you, not your behavior was problematic. It becomes into you hurt um, Karen's feelings, 
right? Yeah. It's a conversation, right? It shifts. Yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. It's it's almost a form of manipulation in a way. Yes. You know, it, it, it's it it's like uh, they play the victim card. Yes, yes, yes. And and, and it becomes um, frustrating and tiresome. And then you just have where, yeah. you know, um, many women just won't even deal with it. Like, okay, whatever. Move on. Yeah. Yeah, talk to the hand. <laughs> um, it will. It, it and and you know and and I can under I I can understand both sides. You know, um, I I mean I I think you know white women have been fighting their battles and not and and just maybe assuming that in fighting their battles they're also fighting for uh, African American women. But you know, there's there's subtle differences. You know, um, maybe they would have the best of intentions but but i would push back at that as well because what what enables white women to fight their battle and um uh black feminists have been talking about this for a very long time but there was just an article released about it again um that talked about that white women are able to fight a lot of their battles because of the cheap work of women of color um because Mm, there are brown women cleaning their homes um there are black women watching their children, right? You have, right. you know, time is costly, right? Particularly leisure time and the time it takes in order to um, to do the work to change institutions, right? So whose time mm-hmm. are you taking advantage of in order to um, do your own work of what you deem as protection? And I would also say that a lot of times white women's political work has also depended and piggybacked off of the civil rights movement of um, and the cycle of, of of black folks, and particularly the work of, of black women, right? So even when you have the suffragette right. movement, that's coming from the work that they learned in the abolition movement, right? These so, are the so, 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 sorry. So let me and forgive me if this is if this is stupid and oversimplistic. No, no. Um, so is the is this you know uh, and this is a sincere question and because that makes perfect sense what you just said you know the white women are out there trying to fight the fight but who's home watching their kids and cleaning their house yeah. and doing their lawn yeah. and blah 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 um, so would the would the solution be um, uh, to improve the economy to have real equality so that the white women and the black women are together in solidarity fighting the fight. I, what what I, I I think the idea more is of the idea of what Patricia Hill Collins uh, speaks about in her article called Shifting the Center. The issue is that the center of the women's movement continues to be white womanhood, when it and particularly middle class white womanhood, and that is not the central experience of the majority of women in this country or the majority of women in this world. Um, and that's the problem there, right? What happens when you center indigenous women um, and you begin to talk about the idea of um, the huge levels of rape, uh, sexual assault, the idea that um, their children were literally taken from them, right? So much of mm-hmm. the mainstream feminist movement is about the right to uh, the termination of a pregnancy, right? But then you mm-hmm. have the idea of, 
What if you shift the center to black women and the right for my children to be able to play with a gun without being shot by the police? I want to have my child, mm-hmm. right? Why right. is this the focus of the women's movement, right? Why is it the focus of the women's movement? How, what happens if you shift the center to some of the things going on with poor white women, right? It's right, right. I white, get it. Right. So, so they're yes, fighting, yes, yes. fighting different battles, and yet we are so myopically on this one manifestation of womanhood that is usually educated, that is usually um, mostly white, and that is usually upper class. Right. And their battles are not the majority of battles of women. So shift the center. Yeah. That's what I'm asking for. I, well, yeah, so we're so – we're, so we have we have different world experiences, we have different world views, we have different battles that we're fighting. Um, and it, but all of all of the battles need to be fought, though. So is is there a way for us all to fight the battles? I mean, is there a way to come together in solidarity and do the best we can for everyone? Um, I don't know. I don't have very. <laughs> I'm not. Excuse me, a very optimistic You're cynical. Person, particularly at this point, I, that's I am, okay. I'm very cynical. Um, I'm very cynical. That's okay. Um, uh, with these things, but I also think that there, we also have to face the reality that there are only. A... Wait, we lost. I lost some of your words there. Can you kind of maybe repeat that last sentence? Yes, I was saying that we also have to pay attention to that there are a limited amount of resources. We cannot fight every single battle at every single moment. So there will always be a prioritizing. Um, I think the push with a lot of black feminists um, and other uh, feminists and women of color is who's doing the prioritizing of the resources, why and how, and who's making those decisions over the resources. It's just not possible to do everything at one time. We have to be smart about it. But what does who begins to define what smartness look like looks like and what the good use of resources is. And again, that calls for a recentering, a shifting of who is in the margins. Gotcha. I getcha. So is I mean, are these sorts of conversations being had though, Kanitra, between uh between white and black women? I mean, um it uh, or white women being educated of, about some of the things, you know, you're talking to me about tonight so that we understand that just because we're out there you know, voting I mean, trying to get fifteen dollar minimum wage and access to abortion and equal pay, that that's not enough for uh, you know, people of color, women who you know who uh, are black and brown skinned. Well, I mean, I, I also don't think it's our job to educate white women. Uh, white women are quite educated. <laughs> I think there's a certain level of willful ignorance there, um, and that there is the ability to educate yourself and to do the work on yourself. At, at a certain point, it comes to where folks have to do their own work. Um, right. And not depend on being taught. Again, is that a shift into this idea of you? You must teach me, right? Uh, what right. other stuff to do? We're, you know, we're we're literally trying to survive right. and to sit sit aside and and, and teach teach um, and focus energy um, on uh, the teaching of, of of white folks. And I say white folks as a whole because it's not just white women in this instance. Um, I think there has to be a lot more terms of. Um, 
of, of being self-taught, of being an autodidact, right, within that. Right. There are blogs, there are blogs out there that are dedicated to teaching white folks and even specifically dedicated to teaching white women about these issues. Are folks doing the work? You know, you're right, and, and you know, I, I, I hear where you're coming from. You're right, but so much of life is about knowing the right questions to ask. And, you know, I would be willing to bet that a lot of white women don't know the right questions to ask because I'll be totally honest with you. You know, I, I, I'm a woman who feels like, uh, you know, women are, have been oppressed long enough and, you know, and, and I want to do whatever I can to make the world a better place for the 99% instead of the 1%. And, mm-hmm. the, and, and I didn't stop and think about what you just said a few minutes ago about how the stuff that white women are fighting for uh, or, or not necessarily the most important things that women of color or, um, or um you know, are fighting for, and I know I'm well intentioned, mm-hmm. but I didn't. I didn't even realize that that was a question to ask. You know, I just yeah. sort of assumed what white women are fighting for will benefit all women, and no. I, you know, and and, <laughs> and and I didn't know any better. Sincerely, mm-hmm. um, so well, so I blogs, guess it's not right? it's it's not it, it's not that your it's not your job to. Um, I guess it's not your job to educate us, but it would be helpful <laughs> if you could help us, you know. If, if, can you see the difference there? I, I do, and I see, you know, I think that some things are, are folks' blessings, other things are not. This is not one of my blessings, but there are some awesome people mm-hmm. out there doing excellent work. So there's social right. media. There are, you know, and, and, and again, I'm saying this because there are, and to repeating and placing myself within that idea of both oppressor and oppressed, right? I'm heterosexual, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'm cisgendered. So there is work that I always and constantly have to do to make sure I am um, making safe place, spaces as best as possible because I screw up of doing my work with my friends who identify and loved ones who identify as queer, with my friends and loved ones who identify as trans. So, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm just saying what I do. I, I read, right. I look, um, um, there are blogs, uh, and I'm going to talk about the ones specifically geared to race, like to Francesca um, Ramsey, um, Didi Delgado. These are people on social media who do this work. This is their calling, and they do this okay. teaching work. And I would also say to white women, when you have folks who, where that is their being, they are teaching you, contribute to their PayPal. Um, bring them mm-hmm. in for talks, pay talks. Um, you know, subscribe to their YouTube channels where they are doing this work, right? Don't uh, simply take it in exchange. So there, there are folks out there who are, are doing really good work with it. They're on the social media and you just have to find them. But, again, that okay. takes the initiative of, of asking those questions. And the people who have done that work, who are trained in that work, and who will train you in that work, um, mm-hmm. and who uh, meet those intersections, right? Um, okay. I have to learn a lot about um, uh, transness and trans identities. So I have to sit and, and not only talk to my friends who identify as trans, I have to look at a lot of like videos, um, instructional videos of this is the prop these are mm-hmm. the proper terms to use. 
uh, this is how you handle this situation, where people have been beneficial right. enough to sit down and edit some things together and teach me and where I subscribe to their channel, I put a little bit in their PayPal and things like this because I'm using their intelligence and their knowledge so I can be a better citizen. Gotcha. Gotcha, and I totally get it. I totally get it. Well, and in, in, in after the show, I, I want you to share some of these names with me uh, because I would like to get them here on the show. And and uh, and I also do these Joseph Campbell roundtables. And uh, you know, maybe if some of these folks are local, we can actually you know get them in to give some talks and things like of that. Well, well, well. Thank you for this. Um, you know, I, I I appreciate the insight, and that's that's why I wanted to, you know, have you on the show. And I know we we kind of got off topic here, and and I want to oh, try to bring it back to, um, you know, Sycorax and and you know, black women in horror. Um, do these things sort of all tie back into that, though? Yes, it, it does. Uh, I, I say that black women actually change horror um, when they are writing it, and they turn things that are usually seen as scary, things that are usually seen as evil, as places of agency and change and power, right? So where uh, the scary voodoo woman um, in mainstream horror is something to be feared, is something to be afraid of, Um uh, in where black women write about and um, create horror, uh, she becomes the mambo, right? Her true term, mm-hmm. um, her true title, mm-hmm. and and it becomes a place in which um, they get to change things for their neighborhood. Uh, Chester right. Burke, she has a short story called Chocolate Park that I talk about, and uh, the mambo there, she uh, is living in um, a tenement in um, in the project. Right, and she uses her powers to um, attack and terrorize the drug dealer who is making everyone's lives miserable. Right, who 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 uh, sexually assaults one of the girls that she cares for, who actually played mm-hmm. a part in killing her own son. Right, so now you're having where she sends she's sending the zombies of the people this person has killed to tear him apart. Right, so now you're getting where zombies mm-hmm. aren't something scary, where zombies aren't something well aren't something scary to people who are doing right, right? Where zombies aren't mm-hmm. something to be killed and be, to be destroyed, but they're being used to avenge um, the attacks on the living, the attacks on right. the marginalized, the attacks on the poor, right? So this is what I talk mm-hmm. about uh, with regards to um, black women writing horror. Right, they change the rules, and it becomes uh, it becomes um, an opportunity to have really interesting discussions about power. And so, that is that where the conjure woman comes into this? Yes, right. So, um, I look at traditional African religious practices from Western Central Africa, and how they manifest um, in many parts of the diaspora. Right. So, they manifest in the South as conjure or hoodoo. They manifest, they can manifest, um, and, and that's just a set of practices that's not a specific religion, but they can mm-hmm. manifest in parts of the Caribbean as a specific religion, right? So in in Haiti, it would be in Vodou, right? In uh, Cuba, it would be in um, uh, Santeria, right? So where you're starting to get these things that are seen as dark and scary as a place of power and um, uh, recovery, 
when black women are writing for us. Gotcha. Well, you know, I and I I, I like this, and 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 uh, well, and, and you also uh, you were going to say one of your future projects is uh, conjure feminism. Um, I, I want to yeah. hear about that, but 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 you what you're making me think of is how um, you know uh, you know how some white women have sort of reclaimed Lilith, for instance. You know, Lilith yeah. is supposed yeah. to be, uh, you know, she uh, you know the succubus. And you know, yes. kills babies, mm-hmm. and you know all yes. of these sorts of things. But women yes. have, uh, you know, white women have reclaimed her and are rewriting the story, just like um, yes. uh, you're saying. You know, black women are doing with uh, the Conjure Woman, and and now, and how does Beyonce fit into this? So I, I would also like to push uh, back and deal with ideas of the Lilith, right? So um, is there, there's ideas of reclamation, but also how Lilith is imagined and how a Lilith figure would actually uh, look and manifest, right? So uh, mm-hmm. are, are white women re- reclaiming in that reclamation or are there also sort of issues in terms of, you know, uh, imagining Lilith with uh, pale skin and dark hair, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. particularly when she is in the Jewish tradition, when she is, you know, a woman who is, of the Middle East, a woman who would look and manifest bodily in a certain way, right? So even in that reclamation, is there a recognition of um, <laughs> uh, the power structures and hierarchies that are even there in, in the manifestation of her? Kanitra, I, I, I'm laughing because, look, you and I are both from the South, girl. You yes. know Jesus, and all of those people are blonde hair and blue-eyed. I mean, white you know. Jesus it, it caused problems for millennia. Listen, white Jesus, listen, <laughs> I love Jesus, but my Jesus ain't white. Ain't never been white. <laughs> I, I, I mean, so I, 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 I mean, I think that as white Jesus, like that's white Jesus, white Jesus of the South. Um, so, so I mean, Jesus think of, of all the nativity, think of all the, the nativity scenes under Christmas trees, and you know, everybody there is white. You know, except it's, for the it's, one it's, wise uh, man, it's, right? The one wise man <laughs> who gets to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, so I get you. So with the reclamation, you know, when white women are reclaiming Lilith, they should reclaim her in what she would actually look like, and not, um, uh, you know, otherwise the oh, what is the word? Uh, the word is not coming to me. Other, otherwise, they're just sort of co-opting that. Uh, oh shoot, I forget what it's called. Yeah. What, appropriate. appropriate. Thank you. Otherwise, they're just a appropriating right so other women who are yes. you're taking a woman of power from jewish women and saying oh well you know we're just going to make a whole fair about her we're going to do all these things <laughs> about her and all this. i mean we know y'all been rocking with her for millennia but we're going to take her and remix her <laughs> right <laughs> I know. Well, or or any of the Egyptian goddesses, for that matter. You know. Right. But, right. Okay, Did you see that thing on the today? I've always sitting around with my white girlfriends, and I'm like, do y'all see why sometimes people have issues? <laughs> and they're always like, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I was like, I just want to put that out there that sometimes folks get a little hot with y'all. 
<laughs> well, you know, and, and, and rightly so. Um, you know, sometimes we just do stupid things. You know, what what can I tell you? And we don't even realize we're being stupid. Um, and there's also the need, um, you know, I understand the need to want to see yourself in, in something, right? To want to see this personal power here, to want to see these traditions. And I always like when I talk to um, – I have, I have um, when, I, when I talk to my, particularly my white female students and things like that, and about, even about the idea of the indigenous headdresses, right, and those sorts of things, mm-hmm. I start to show them, like, um, the Eastern European, particularly the Polish tradition of those big, beautiful headdresses of flowers and things that they would make. I was, and I'm like, listen, your people have traditions. They're gorgeous. They're deep. They run deep. They're beautiful. This is beautiful. What is it the need to go into someone else's tradition and not looking at your own histories and the beauties that's there? Right, right, right. right. Um, it's, yeah. It's, it's not saying, you know, of saying that, you know, uh, I want to claim this as yours, but I won't pay attention to what's in my history and what's so uncomfortable about that, right? Yeah. Um, and so we want to have those more nuanced conversations, and they're like, dang, I didn't even know that. Well, I was like, yes, and your last name is Taylor. Well, this is your people, right? This is gorgeous. Well, you know, sometimes I think it's just it's purely just short-sightedness, you know. Okay. They see Agreed. something, they like it, they want it. <laughs> Agreed. You know, Agreed. and, and uh, it's, it's – um, you know, it, obviously it's not good, but I'm glad you, you know, you kind of at least steered them back to their own culture. Yeah, right. And, and so <laughs> we begin to talk about, like, religious traditions and whatever, and I'm like, you know, your last name is Irish. Are you go, are you Scottish? You're going back, going, going to look at your home country and the things that your people are doing. My, um, I'm doing a dissertation with um, and my graduate student, Stephanie Showman. And she is looking at this idea of the Gothic across this, the idea of the ethno-Gothic, right, um, across multiple people. So she's doing folks from the African diaspora, um, folks from the Latin diaspora, but also folks from the Irish diaspora, right? I'm like, you have to represent mm. your people and deal with that as well. Of what's going, There are many diasporas. Right, right. And so what, well, what are the implications in- for that? Well, yeah, and and you, but you don't hear about that, you know. I've never heard anybody use the phrase, you know, Irish diaspora. And and listen, Irish folks went everywhere because people were literally starving to death, right? Folks were just trying to survive. <laughs> right, right. right. So exactly, exactly. So well, so so. Well, well, you know, and, and and there's so much to talk about, and and I and I and I don't want to neglect this subject of the uh, you know women and black women in horror. Um, is is there more to that though that you want to share? Um, no, I, listen, I think that I'm trying to change the conversation um, of what's considered horror, what horror can do. Um, I think that one lucky thing uh, for um, what I've been studying. I, um, was uh, Jordan Peele and folks, many folks' realization that black horror existed. <laughs> and, you know, while I was writing the project, people were like, black horror? I don't think that works. And then, like, black women in horror and whatever. And now that everything's happened with Get Out, they're like, oh, my God, you knew it. I was like, no, no this is just, you know, the, the, the way to, really the way to excuse my friends, piss me off, is to say black women don't do something. And I kept hearing that black women don't do horror. 
or black women don't like horror and black women aren't horror fans. And I know that I became a fan of horror from my dad's sisters, from my aunts, right? I opened up my um, my book, Cigarac- Searching for Cigarettes, with me watching Grace Jones as a vamp. Um, uh-huh. um, in the Joy Theater, right, in New Orleans, right? You would know where that is. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep, I right? sure do. Um, and, and I also, what, what sparked my project was reading Robert Kirkman's The Walking Dead and uh, The Rape of Michonne. They don't show it in the television show because he got raped, raped over the coals for it, but she is gang raped um, within the first mm. few um the first few episodes, the first few uh, trade paperbacks of, of the okay. Walking Dead comic book series. And I said, I was reading his work and reading how he was treating Michonne, and I said, he is reinforcing old slave scripts. He thinks he's being um, cutting edge. He thinks he's being savvy. But he had her gang raped, and he had her pinned to the wall with slave cotton. And hmm. the fact that because black women were thought of as insignificant in horror, because it was seen that black women weren't fans of horror, that folks thought they could do with anything with black women in horror. And that was a right. problem for me. And that really sparked this project of me just being so angry at what he did with the characterization of Michonne. Um, yeah. In, in his well, comic book. Well, I, I'm a, I'm a fan of her in the show, and mm-hmm. and I and I'm glad they I'm glad they didn't put that in the you know in the television show. And I mean, and they oh, really made her a strong. They even dealt with it with the comic books because you know at the, when the comic book first came out, he would do like a Q and A session after the uh, a letter, you know, answering the letters of his fans after. Right, this is really early on when he was trying to get the following for it. They talked about it for effort, for you know, issue after issue after issue, where he finally was like, "We're not going to talk about this anymore," and he got dreamed. It was, it was, it was, it was a beautiful thing. I actually had my students go through the last <laughs> when I was teaching it. <laughs> um, but no, there was no way that he was going to do that. No, no. But I just, I, I'm, I'm putting out there that Robert Kirkman is not someone I should meet in a dark alley at all. No, that, that was. <laughs> well, that was are you happy? But are you are you happy with the Michonne character on television? Um, I'm happier with it. I love the Nigera. I haven't watched the I haven't watched this the Negan stuff. I have them all built up on my DVR. I just don't think that the mm-hmm. Negan storyline is being handled mm-hmm. very well. I don't know how yeah, I it's... feel about him him and them placing her with Rick. I really loathe Rick. I, I've been rooting for him to die since issue one, and he just won't die. Um, <laughs> I've been rooting for him to die since episode one, and he just won't die. I, you know, I just never understand this idea of, um, you know what, uh, you know, this sort of uh, straight white male um, ideas of power destroyed the world with zombies. So let's reinstate that after the world collapses. And it's kind of like, hasn't they had their chance? And I just don't understand why Carol isn't the leader. And I'm just like, Carol is mm. actually literally competent and good mm-hmm. at the job. And y'all mm-hmm. just hand everything over to her because she gets stuff done. <laughs> and it's only because she uh, lacks a penis and identifies as a woman that y'all won't give it to her. Kill Rick, well, give everything I'm, to Carol, and folks could possibly like live and stop dying. 
Well, you know, I, I, everything everything is geared toward the 18 to 35-year-old male. I mean, I've been trying to get something on television forever, and it's not geared toward, you know, that that uh, gender and age group. So, you know, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't ever make it. Gearing, right? We're seeing that with Black Panther. We're seeing that with Wonder Woman. The fanboys have had mm-hmm. it for a long time. It's time for them to move out the way. I'm tired of them. So, so, they're, they're so, what, less uh, what did you, work. so what did you think about uh, Black Panther and and uh, the uh, the Michonne character in in it? Her name's Danae, isn't it? Yes. Or yes, Danae? Yes, yes. I may, yeah, I may be pronouncing it uh, incorrectly. Um, uh, she's the Okoye character. I love Black Panther, but but there is another thing in talking about the tensions between Black and White women. Um, there was an article that came out in which uh, Black women started to ask, "Why isn't um, Black Panther seen as this uh, great feminist film the way Wonder Woman was, particularly when it was much more feminist in its manifestation than Wonder Woman?" Right? I don't understand why the Steve Pilot character existed. I enjoyed some parts of Wonder Woman. I thought it had a lot of potential. I think the last 15 minutes when they allowed Snyder to do his, oh, his tired little thing um, that he does at the very end of it. Um, but it's still sort of catered to where you have her catering to um, the Steve the pilot character, mm-hmm. um, where you have her, um, you know, again, surrounded by, by all men. You know, when she goes yeah. to um, – to the World War One thing, right? Particularly when a woman who, you know, why wouldn't she gravitate to other? I don't know. That's just, you know, it, it. I think that Wonder Woman was appealing. I enjoyed it, and then I saw Black Panther, and it blew my mind. And so, why isn't this read as this great feminist work the way in which uh, Wonder Woman automatically was? I, I think, I think yeah. that's a conversation that could, should continue as well. Well, you know, and 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 my two cents there is, um, you know, I guess it was it it was a huge leap of faith to even have, uh, you know, have the story be around a female. They couldn't break the mold too much, but but you're right. I mean, to really change things, we just can't insert somebody who has a vagina into a story that could just as well be written for a man, you know. I don't know if that makes sense, but, you know, she was still about war and she was still about fighting. And I don't know, on the one hand, that's all good, but I think that's what we're trying to get away from in this world. Um, where and, Black and when Panther, she about changing the world with love, she was laughed at, yeah. right? You know, because there are some moments when she's like, no, we really need to look at this other way of doing things. But And that's why I talk yeah. about the last 15 minutes where he just turns everything into like this muscular man show of war war and fighting, right? And starts to embody yeah. Yeah. war. Um, you know, and, and again, I think that's, you know, that's the Snyder issue going on um, with it. But, but you know, there are times when she tries to push, and, and I do think that they – at a certain point, they did the best that they could with in terms with womanhood. Um, mm-hmm. There are issues also in terms with even in Thermoscura, she had a black nanny. Like, really? Come on. Really? We can't get that. Like, what? Come on. Really? You know, I had to put aside my intersectional lab, and I was like, I'm just going to enjoy this, take this off, and take off, like, 
a part of my heart and enjoy Wonder Woman. Um, yeah. But 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 looking at, at at some of these things going on, um, yeah, I think Black Panther, the release of Black Panther, highlight um, highlighted a lot more of the flaws of Wonder Woman for me. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and, and and you know what bugged me, Kanitra, was um, it, it, you know at the very end, um, after they show a bunch of credits, they have you know have them come back and they show you them talking to the UN, I imagine, about how yeah. Wakanda is oh is going to share with the rest of the world. And I thought, how many people have already walked out and left the movie by the time they say this? You know, no, but um, I think the that, is the worst way to go, right? It's the worst way to go. I think it's one of the huge flaws of the film. Like, what does the yeah. UN call? The UN doesn't do chat, right? And who does it? What does it mean? And the implication? I think they're also playing with the cult version here because, um, you know, T'Challa pays for this. It's a mistake that he does at the end that he makes at the end in exposing the world to Wakanda in this way. And uh, there are consequences for this action. I think we're going to see some of those consequences in Infinity War. Um, if you read the cult version of the Black Panther, you see that Wakandans suffer for him for him opening uh, the borders up to other people, and um, there there are huge consequences for those actions. So um, I think that's that's something that's going to, that's going to be a continual conversation. I do not think hmm. that the UN is the way to go uh, go about that. Um, yeah, I think I think that's a huge mistake that he makes at the end. Huge. Yeah. Well, that it'll that'll, it'll be interesting to follow the thread of that story. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. but let's but let's go. I, I think I distracted you. Um, let's go yeah. back to uh, to Beyonce. How does she yeah. fit into the whole horror and black women uh, motif? So what I um, with the Lemonade Project, what I read her as doing as. Um, revising and updating the idea of the conjure woman, right? And she brings mm-hmm. in and embodies a lot of, you know, there there were there have been readings where she brings in and embodies a lot of the um, um, uh, uh, African de- deity figures in her mm-hmm. um, Lemonade project. Um, she um, uses them as a tool of healing and as a tool of finding peace um as a way of finding your way through hurt and pain um okay. and and a way to to break cycles uh un, unhealthy cycles within um within families and okay. so okay. with that uh that's why I say with going back to the idea of conjure um towards the end she goes back to the swamp she goes back to West Louisiana where her mother's people are from so tapping into that um black woman's power, tapping into that ability to heal, but also tapping into um, older deities of, of black women and how they can um, provide a place of power uh, and reclamation for uh, black women in pain. I think that's a really interesting thing that she's doing. Yeah, well, and, and, and forgive me, I, I'm not that familiar with the Lemonade Project, but mm-hmm. I have seen some pictures of her where she's beautifully dressed like a goddess, and I thought to myself, gee, is she, you know, sort of portraying or embodying maybe Oshun or Oya or one of those? Yes, and um, it, it is. 
it, it, is that part of the Lemonade Project? Yes. Yes, and I would actually recommend folks to sit down and watch it. I, I, I talk to folks because um, they, the Beyonce factor makes them hesitant. And I always say, um, it's, excuse my French again, like good shit is good shit. And she, she, made, good, she made good shit. The Lemonade Project is excellent. Um, so where do you Beyonce, find it? Just take away the Beyonce. It's, um, hmm, there, it, it's available pretty much. It's available. Like she released it as the album project. It's available on Tidal. Right. Um, when she released it, she actually released it for free on HBO's free weekend, and Tidal was free that weekend. Like you could get a six month Tidal um, subscription for it. It's a little bit more difficult okay. to find now, but it's there. Okay. Yeah, okay. It, it's fifty five minutes. Um, my colleague Harry Benshaw from University of North Texas, he was like. Beyonce got everyone to sit down and watch a 55-minute avant-garde film. Like, who else can do that? Um, but but, but it, it's very well done. It's very well researched. Um, it, it is excellent. Um, it, it's not perfect, but I, I think she's pushing at it, reclaiming some ideas that need to be discussed. And I just don't want folks to let the Beyonce haze of it to prevent them from enjoying a, an amazing piece of work. Um, I, okay. And, and what is conjure feminism? Well, for me, conjure feminism is a way of looking at conjure women and root workers of um, the U.S. South and um, the Caribbean as as intellectuals, as a reclamation of black women's intellectual history. Um, also recognizing that these women, because they were working with roots, because uh, they were growing things in their garden that they were botanists and that a lot of the things that we took for granted from these women are, are very, very complex cosmologies and um, manifesting the way in which black men, women create and move in worlds within worlds. And so what I want to do is, again, this idea of shifting the center of who's counted as an intellectual, of who's counted mm-hmm. as a scientist, and of who's and, and why. Right. What are the okay. power dynamics that are there? Yeah. Well, and and it is important to shift that narrative. I mean, there was just an article I think out today that uh, National Geographic is um, yeah. uh, holding themselves accountable for how they've been portraying people of color, you know, as heathens and savages and yeah. anti-intellectual and all right. of that. Yeah. And 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 you know, look, I mean, I know we have so far to go. But I don't know, it almost feels like could we possibly be almost turning a corner? Um, Do you think maybe? (laughs) Again, I'm a cynic, no. I think we're reverting, actually. (laughs) I think we're we're going back. Um, Because of Trump and the white supremacists and everything? Yeah, I think, you know, listen, I won't be surprised if we go back into a reinstation of Jim Crow. Everything, all the um, the work that has been done is being um, not even slowly, but quickly dismantled. And is it true change if it can be if it can be dismantled this quickly? And one of the reasons why I am going back and studying and recovering these old ways is that this is how we will not only survive but thrive. Um, right. You know, our grandparents, our great grandparents. Um, 
lived through this and carried on and did these things um, um, by following these ways. And we need to do it if we're going to 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 uh, make it through and make it through these rough times. Um, at the yeah. at, at Trump's um, when Trump was elected, my mother broke into tears because she said, "I thought that we had done the work to stop this that y'all wouldn't have to go through this." She said, "We made all those sacrifices, so you know, so my children wouldn't have to go through this, right?" And to see yeah. all their hard work dismantled. I don't see this as turning a corner at all. I see this as a reversion, and I see this as this is what what is meant to happen um, by those those in power, um, and that even um, the intimation at turning a, a corner, um, possibly with the with the, with the elect, election of Obama, um, has such a vicious blowback. Um, it's like, don't you even dare. And I yeah. think that that has to be accounted for. Well, you know, you you might be right, and maybe I'm just being too optimistic. But, you know, I've sort of been looking at – I've been looking at Trump as almost a gift – because mm-hmm. if Hillary had gotten if Hillary had gotten elected, everybody would be still asleep on the couch, and I kind of I kind of feel like uh, you know maybe historians uh, I mean well you know time will tell, but maybe historians will say that he was the catalyst for real activism. And you know, and, and that that's my hope. You know, um, I mean, but, you look at what the I kids would... are doing today. Yeah. No, no. I mean, but, what the kids are doing today. Say, yeah, but who is being sacrificed for for other folks to come to their realization? Right. Who? Who? How? What lives are we losing for some for some folks to come to? I know. A basic part of common decency. Right. How many I, I know. children it's, are dying it's, because it's, of that? I, I, I don't know if it's that sacrifice damage. that needs to be made. You know what I mean? We're, we're literally yeah, sacrificing no, I, our children. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is collateral damage. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, I, I that that's not lost on me. Um, but you know, before Trump took office, there were uh, you know kids going to bed hungry. There was you know voter uh, you know voter suppression. There was you know racism. Uh, you know, I, I I I think it it hasn't gotten worse. It's just gotten more visible. And maybe you know Trump has been the catalyst to make it more visible, so people realize they have to fight. You know that that, that you know good people can't do nothing. And um, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it you know these people were around. I mean they they didn't they didn't didn't just hatch when Trump took office. Um, you know they've been they've been there in the shadows. I mean look I I'm from Louisiana. David Duke almost became the governor. You know, yeah, trust um, me, you know. I, yeah. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had to see so, the uh, words over him, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take take the thief over the, the KKK. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, so I, I don't know, you know, it, it, I, I realize it's not good and, and a lot of people are suffering, but, um, I, you know, they always say, you know, you have to hit rock bottom before you can come back up. And um, I, I think people are realizing that the country could slip through our fingers if we don't get out there and vote and run for office and, uh, you know, and start fighting for a better quality of life for all of us. Um, 
I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to be hopeful, and uh, we'll see. I admire I guess. your optimism. I, I am a, I am, I am my father's daughter. <laughs> don't trust me. <laughs> I am my father's daughter. <laughs> I am prepared well, for the end you... of the world, literally. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not. So, uh, you know, you, you, you may be the one that survives. But listen, we said we were going to chat for about an hour. It's yeah. been about an hour and eight minutes. See how well, quick it goes? I told you it would go I fast. I know. I um, but is there... Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Well, I'm so glad to have had this chat, and I want to make sure before you say, you know, you before you hang up, is there anything we haven't chatted about that you want to make sure you, you know, you tell listeners? Um, no. Please follow me on social media um, at k the number eight d e e sixteen on Twitter, and um, I have a website w w dot Kenitra D as in dog Brooks at um, dot com. Um and you know, on my social media I'm always recommending um things for folks to read, uh fantasy, science fiction and horror written uh by uh black women. Um we have the release of Tommy Adeyemi's Children of Blood and Bone um this past week, which is sort of a fantasy adventure and a trilogy. Uh, it was just sound, uh, signed to Fox um, uh, 2000. Uh, people are describing it as a Nigerian Harry Potter, which it isn't, but it's still really cool, <laughs> a really cool okay. ride. Um, there's also Justina Ireland's um, Dread Nation, which is coming out in April. Um, so I'm always saying, like, there are folks who are writing really good work, um, really exciting work in genre, and uh, here are some suggestions for folks to read. Um, so please follow me for that. Well, and to your own horn, too, because you have your anthology, Sycorax's Daughters, on from yes. Cedar Grove Press, yes. right? Yes, and, um, uh, so, and that's uh, Sycorax, S-Y-C-O-R-A-X's Daughters. Now, was that was that the one that was a double nominee for the Bram Stoker Award? Well, both of them, each one was, was nominated for the Stoker Award. Uh, so Sycorax's Daughter was nominated for the Stoker Award. It, it's an edited volume. It was a pleasure to edit with uh, Dr. Susanna Morris um, and Linda Addison. Uh, Cedar Grove Press, they were awesome. Um, that was nominated um, for a Stoker Award as well as my Searching for Sycorax um, um, scholarly piece. That was nominated for a Bronze Stoker Award. So I felt, I, I, you know, listen, I was happier than a pig in mud. So it, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, we'll we'll thank you, thank you, Kenitra, so much for coming on the show tonight. You have you've got me thinking about some stuff, and you know, awesome. I'm going to do what I can in in my corners of the world to uh, help educate the white women that I know. And Excellent. Um, and and I'll give you in, some links in, that maybe you can put up on your website. I'll I'll gather that tomorrow. Okay. And maybe you can put up so okay, people can great. follow some people and learn some stuff and make things a little bit easier. I appreciate that. I really, really do. Well, listen, let's keep in touch. And when you got another topic that you want to share, you know, please just uh, pop me an email and we'll get you back on the show. 
Awesome. You have a wonderful evening, and again, thank you for having me as a guest. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for coming, and good night. <laughs> good night. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I uh, hope you enjoyed that show. I sure did. And um, and if anyone is interested in those links, uh, you can pop me an email, or I will definitely put them on my Facebook page. Uh, and just so you can, uh, let me give uh, Kenitra's website again. It's her name, Kenitra Brooks, but her middle initial is in there. So it's K-I-N-I-T-R-A, D as in David, Brooks. Dot com And uh, her two books are um, Searching for Sycorax and Sycorax's Daughter, uh, Daughters, uh, plural. Um, okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then I am going to come back and share with you um, a, a bittersweet, well, no, it's not bittersweet, it's a horrible um, development that um, uh, our roving reporter, Pat, uh, has uh, discovered, um, and it was on the ACLU uh, blog, and uh, I think everybody should know about it. Uh, It will have you uh, pulling your hair out. Uh, But first, uh, first we have a word here from Joe Carson. Hello, let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was obviously very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast, and with so many layers. I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. DVD, Dancing with Gaia by Joe Carson. Uh, It comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book that goes even deeper into the material, and the DVD and the book are only $20. And again, uh, you can find it at Dancing with 
www.gaia.com. And uh, Joe has another book out uh, that you'd want to know about as well. It's called uh, Celebrate Wildness. And um, uh, I would recommend you go to her Feriferia dot org site for that. That's F E R A F E R I A F E R A F E R I A dot org, and um, uh, that's that's another great one. Um, you know, it has to do with um, the. Uh, Fred Adams' uh, work uh, and, uh, you know, reclaiming uh, the Feriferia tradition and, um, you know, because Fred intended that Feriferia uh, would lead the world to a future, you know, uh, that in, that was one of freedom and eros and play and, uh, you know, that those would be our core values and that, you know, things that were built by human hands would merge seamlessly into the wild. Uh, it almost reminds me of, you know, kind of a hobbit uh, type uh, type environment. Uh, but uh, Celebrate Wildness, it's a profound book. It, uh, uh, it's full of art and, um, you know, really speaks to your subconscious. Uh, so anyway, if you're looking for a great coffee table book or uh, something that, you know, honors the earth and Wicca and, um, um, you know, things that are of like mind with, I think, the listeners of my show out there, uh, please go to feriferia.org and also look up Celebrate Wildness while you're looking up uh, Dancing with Gaia at dancingwithgaia.com. Um, so uh, next week, um, my guest is going to be uh, Zohara Hieronymus, and uh, she's been on the show before, but uh, the, this time she's talking about her new book, uh, White Spirit Animals, Prophets of Change. Uh, I think you'll uh, enjoy that. And then uh, the last Tuesday of the month, um, I will actually uh, be here alone with you. Uh, I don't have a guest. Uh, I am going to do what uh, has become popular. Uh, you've told me you enjoy. Uh, since none of us uh, or most of us are not in the same city and you don't get a chance to hear my talks and I don't always videotape them and put them on YouTube, uh, I am going to share my last talk, uh, which I gave a few weeks ago, uh, with you uh, on air. And it's... Um, uh, called Strengthening in Power, Strengthening Our Muscles of Empowerment. Um, so you will get to hear uh, that talk I gave, which was uh, very well received, and um, hopefully you will enjoy it. Uh, so getting to that uh, piece that our Pat, our roving reporter, sent in for me to share, uh, this comes from the ACLU blog under the categories of women's rights and violence against women. Uh, the title of this is Tenants Can Get Evicted for Calling the Police Across New York and Much of the Country. Um, I know when I read that, I kind of did a double take and went, huh? How can that happen? How can you be evicted uh, for calling the police? Well, um, these two folks, uh, Scout Katowicz and uh, Sandra Park, uh, they put this blog, um, you know, online. So this is what this is about. Uh, be aware. Um, 
this, and, and it this starts off like this. The second time that Lori Grape called the police during an attack by her then-boyfriend, they told her that a third call would get her evicted. Under a local law in East Rochester, New York, three police responses to the same property within a 12-month period were grounds for a person to be kicked out of their home. The next time her ex-boyfriend attacked her, Lori decided to stay silent rather than risk eviction. Lori, however, didn't stay silent for long. In 2010, uh, Lori Grape and another domestic violence survivor settled the lawsuit against East Rochester, resulting in the village changing its so-called nuisance abatement law. Unfortunately, similarly harmful ordinances continue to be in force around the state of New York. Okay, is your hair on fire yet? Can you imagine that if that doesn't keep a woman trapped uh, in bondage? Uh, so today, a coalition, a coalition of rights groups called on 11 of these municipalities to repeal their nuisance laws. In June 2017, a New York appellate court ruled for the first time on the constitutionality of these laws. The court struck down the village of Groton's nuisance abatement law because it infringed on the First Amendment right to petition the government by punishing tenants for calling the police for help or to report a crime. The court agreed with the ACLU's amicus brief in the case, emphasizing the chilling effect that such laws can have on people in need of emergency assistance, with domestic violence victims particularly impacted. Similar laws are in effect in at least 35 states. Many of the nuisance ordinances ACLU is targeting put victims of crime at risk of losing housing. The vast majority make no distinction between nuisance behavior committed by tenants and crimes committed against tenants. Most of the laws also do not require convictions, arrests, or for tenants to be giving any, any notice for the nuisance law to be triggered. That means municipalities can act based on little to no evidence of a crime. These nuisance ordinances violate free speech, due process, equal protection, and fair housing guarantees. But they aren't just illegal, they're bad policy. While cities might intend to prevent crime with these laws, the reality is these ordinances result in housing instability for already vulnerable individuals and reduce trust between communities and law enforcement. When tenants are told that calling the police could result in their eviction, they stop reporting crimes or dangerous conditions, making police officers' jobs more difficult. And nuisance ordinances are not tailored to prevent crime because they often punish landlords and tenants regardless of whether a crime was committed by someone connected to the property where it took place. One of the stories highlighted in that report involved a tenant in Binghamton, who was the victim of repeated domestic violence. Police were called by a neighbor to intervene when her boyfriend threw her to the ground and began to choke her, and again when he returned to the property in violation of a restraining order. Both incidents were cited as nuisance conduct under the city's ordinance. The landlord responded to the city's warning letter about these disturbances by promising to evict the tenant. 
These laws can also be devastating for people with mental or physical disabilities who may need to access emergency assistance more frequently than others. In 2014, for example, the village of Groton classified police assistance to a person engaging in self-harm who had a known history of suicide attempts as a general disturbance. That incident helped get the tenant's building labeled a nuisance property. The law has since been invalidated. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That uh, That is pretty wild stuff. Um, I guess it, it makes me wonder if uh, that sort of thing can happen in the city where I live. No doubt you're probably asking yourself the very same thing. Well, um, listeners, that about does it for me for tonight. Um, I want to thank you for tuning in. I want to thank Kenitra Brooks and uh, also want to thank Emma's Revolution for their music and Pat, our roving reporter, uh, for sending in that story. Uh, I hope you will be with me again next week uh, when I have Zohara Hieronymus here and, uh, you know, when we're uh, talking about... um, her, her new book, uh, which uh, I just uh, mentioned a minute ago, which is titled uh, White Spirit Animals, uh, Prophets of Change. Uh, I think that sounds like a good one. And uh, lots of great uh, guests coming uh, up for you in the spring. So uh, please do hit the follow button so you get uh, notice of these shows uh, in your inbox and you don't have to rely on remembering or finding out about them on my Facebook page, uh, especially if you're not in my uh, email database because I don't always have time uh, to send out notice of the show. Uh, Well, Uh, I hope you've enjoyed tonight's show, enjoyed your tea or your glass of wine. Uh, Please tell your friends about the show. And um, uh, as I always like to say, what what we nurture survives and what we neglect withers. Uh, I hope you will consider uh, sending a donation to uh, KarenTate.com on the Goddess Gift page um, and uh, uh, make a donation to the show to uh, help keep me on the air here uh, and pay for the airtime. All right. uh, I guess uh, I will go ahead and uh, close the show tonight uh, in honor of Kenitra. I'm thinking uh, maybe this little uh, meditation of Isis might do the trick. Here we go. This is Karen Tate, and I'd like to invite you to come along with me on a sacred journey. It's going to be a guided meditation to the Temple of Isis in Egypt. And this is a meditation that uh, the group I uh, founded used uh, every year for an annual ritual of Isis during springtime. So you are about to enter sacred space. I'd like to invite you to take a minute to settle down. Uh, No talking, please. Make sure your phone is turned off or your pager because it's time to begin to take our transition and uh, go within, to shift our consciousness so that we can take this journey together. We're going to take this sacred journey using our breath, our mind, 
the movie screen of our third eye and our divine goddess self will be here and there simultaneously, then and now, past and present. We are part of the continuum of Isis worshippers from ancient times that continues on today, growing stronger as the divine feminine becomes more a part of mainstream life. Now, I want you to be sure you're comfortable for this journey. I'd like to ask you to take some deep breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. Breathe deeply. Let's do this together several times. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Now close your eyes and breathe in deeply and breathe out. Let the worries of the day, the traffic, any outside concerns all just fall away. Continue to breathe in and breathe out keeping your eyes closed. Let's try to keep our eyes closed for the entire sacred journey and let the scenes I suggest come alive on the movie screen of your third eye. If other ideas interrupt, just let them gently fall away and just return to the sound of my voice and the journey we're taking together. Breathe in and breathe out, breathe in, and breathe out. Now, see yourself standing at the dock of the River Nile in Egypt. As you wait to board your boat, you look at the waterway stretching before you. You've waited such a long time for this day. There's excitement in the air as those around you and yourself are about to be granted passage for the journey to the Isis Temple to celebrate her annual festival. Everyone has come wearing their finest clothing and jewelry. You have bathed in a sacred fashion before departing. You've perfumed your body with the best oils of the Blue Lotus. And you've been white galabaya. You've made yourself beautiful for the day celebration and for Isis. You look down and see the sandals upon your feet and you begin to press forward toward your boat. Looking down at your feet, you walk down the steps of the dock toward the boat that will take you to Isis. You go down the first few steps, breathing in and breathing out. Breathing deeply, you go farther down the dock. Down, down. Going nearer your destination, you take the step still ahead, going even farther down. Lower and lower you descend until you are about to step aboard the beautiful boat with the white sails that will transport you to your destination of the Isis Temple. You easily climb aboard the boat and find a seat. Taking a breath, you feel the excitement in the air around you. It's tangible. You see people on the shore waving to you and bidding you a wondrous journey. 
you're excited with anticipation too. You've waited for months for the seat upon the golden barge of Isis, for this chance to visit Isis in her temple and ask her for her blessings. You know that she is the goddess of abundance, the creatrix of all there is. You know she, above all others, can grant you what it is you desire for the coming year. You go to her in a spirit of gratitude for what she has bestowed upon your life. You go to her in love, appreciation, and expectation, because you know if you are grateful, if you believe, you will receive. You feel the boat pulling away from the dock. You hear the din from the crowd, the excited whispers of those around you, but you transfix and focus on the sights and sounds you see as you begin to move forward along the waters of the River Nile. You notice the sweetness in the air from the incense burning near you. You breathe it in. You also soak in the coolness of the day. The green and billowy papyrus growing along the side of the river and the marshes smell like freshly mown grass. You look up, seeing and hearing the wind upon the sails of your boat blowing in the wind, casting you even farther forward. You revel in the gentleness of the cool breeze upon your face. You breathe in the air which fills your lungs and gives you life. You continue along the journey, having just received the gifts of air. You look up into the blue sky, full of the soft and fluffy clouds that remind you of cotton. Birds fly overhead. You notice above you the wingspan of a hawk-like bird, reminiscent of Horus, the son of Isis. You notice how the bright light from the sun's rays casts shadows and plays upon all you see. You enjoy the nurturing warmth of the golden and glowing sun upon the top of your head and on your bare skin. You silently thank the sun for its life-giving rays, which helps the crops grow, that fill your hearth with the delicious food, making you strong and healthy. You continue along the journey, having received the gifts of fire. Next, you see the long-legged ibis bird standing in the shallow water along the shore of the river as your boat passes. Your heart and mind revels in the beauty of this delicate bird's beauty. You see, mostly hidden beneath the water, the huge head of a hippopotamus. Were it not for his eyes, you might not have noticed the silent beast of the Nile. You can see schools of fish jumping alongside your boat as if escorting you along the river towards your destination. Ahead at the shore, children are playing with the family water buffalo, jumping from his back as if he were a diving board. You focus on the waves of the Nile lapping alongside your boat. You know beneath the dark waters, the place from where life emerges, there is an abundance of gifts to support all life. You continue along the journey, having realized you have just received the gifts of water. You look ahead, and in the distance, you begin to see the temple. The majestic structure draws closer and closer. You see throngs of people all walking along the shoreline toward the sacred temple of Isis. They're all dressed in their finery. Some are in costume. 
women are dressed as men, some men are dressed as women, they, they carry mirrors, they carry images of deities, they carry portable altars fixed upon the tops of long poles. You see exotic felines being walked on long leashes. Some women are throwing flowers into the air. They're singing and dancing and celebrating. People of all classes are converging upon the temple for this important ritual of thanksgiving and petition. Some are riding horses. Others come in makeshift carts pulled by donkeys. You hear the bray of the camels in the caravan making its way alongside the river. The beasts lading with the gifts for Isis's golden ship, which will be cast out upon the waters and offering. The sick and elderly come, the rich and poor come. Women are carried in golden palaquins. Children come with their siblings and parents. They all come in procession, walking along the green strip of abundance that grows alongside the Nile. The green growing abundance that is Osiris, consort and brother of Isis. All around you, you see the budding of spring, the crops in the field, the promise of abundance for the coming year, and ahead, the gigantic stones quarried from the earth that comprise the temple of Isis. You realize you're about to conclude your journey to the temple of Isis, realizing you have now received the gifts of air, fire, water, and earth, all her elements. Your boat pulls alongside the dock in front of the Isis temple. Your eyes are magnetically pulled toward the beauty and majesty that is her temple. You follow those with you on your boat toward the entrance, walking between the avenue of sphinxes which lead toward the temple. You see many of the people you saw walking in procession toward the temple and you join in. There's a carnival-like atmosphere. Your skin tingles and your hair stands up on the back of your neck in response to the joy and excitement in the air. Your senses are on overload with the smell of incense, the sound of the animals, and the voices of the people. Soon you are upon the gigantic doorway of the temple, and beyond you know is the holiest part of that temple, the cella, the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies where Isis herself lies beyond these doors. Not everyone is allowed within this holy sanctum. You know how very lucky you are to be a part of this year's audience. A hush falls upon those gathered there. You barely breathe lest your breath break the spell of anticipation. Everyone instinctively becomes quiet, reverent, transfixed upon the doors before them which you sense are about to open and they do ever so slowly you know you have arrived at the cella the holy of holies the inner sanctum of the temple of Isis lady of mystery and magic herself and as the doors open you see before you a throne and beside the throne a priestess and you see her beckoning to you. She wants you to come and sit upon the throne of Isis. Yes, you. She beckons you closer. She's inviting you to be one with the goddess, to receive her gifts as she has done with so many pharaohs before now. 
so you approach the throne and you sit upon the chair and instinctively you open your senses wider ever wider you open yourself to hear what you must hear you open yourself to feel what you must feel you allow yourself to see in your mind's eye what she shows you it may be different each time you visit it may be different for each one gathered here but just take your time just sit within the lap of the goddess upon her throne sit quietly let yourself be open hear what you must hear feel what you must feel see in your mind's eye what she shows you Soon you feel the gentle touch of the priestess. With her gentle touch, you feel her trying to awaken you and bring you back from the place you have visited as you're seated upon the throne. You're coming back to this place because you remember you were there and here simultaneously. It is then and now, past and present, you are and have been part of the continuum of goddess worshippers from ancient time that continues on today, growing ever stronger with each passing day. Remember, you can go back and visit this place, this holy of holy of goddess. It now lives within your mind, your heart, and your body. Travel back here as you must. Receive what she has for you. She is always there. You can always access her. She is always there for you. Now, take a deep breath and open your eyes. Bring yourself back into the room from where you started. You might want to shake your hands and wiggle your toes. Say your name out loud. Maybe grab something to eat. And I thank you for trusting me to take you on the sacred journey. <laughs> 